I was leaving a grocery store in East Nashville yesterday, and I saw this elderly woman walking towards me. She was wearing this long red dress and a big floppy hat, and she must have been 90 years old, and she had a hard time walking, but she had a young man wearing a suit who was walking next to her and holding onto her arm. I'm going to assume that it was her grandson, and they probably just got out of church. But out of nowhere, this big argument broke out between these two women in the parking lot, and they were screaming and calling each other's names. And this little old lady walks up to them and shouts right at their faces, I'm tired of you goddamn fools in your drama. Just walk away from each other and get on with your lives. The two women just stood there in shock. They waited for a second, and then they climbed in their cars and drove off in their separate ways. And it was the coolest thing I've seen this year, and I think I love that little old lady. friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee, and I have my dog Russell sitting on the couch next to me, and if you hear a noise in the background, it's probably because my neighbor is outside the window mowing his lawn. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment, and I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter, There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Billy Bragg. We had a great response last week from part one, so I can't wait to share part two. But you can find out everything you need to know about Billy at billybragg.com. I was touring the UK a couple years ago with Billy, And one of my favorite things is we would stop off during the day and have pub lunch. And I'd never heard of pub lunch, so I really didn't know what it was. But we would pretty much just have really good food at these mom-and-pop places. And we'd sit there and watch football games. But I would often look at the menu and see things that I didn't know what they were. And I would try these things. I remember one day I saw on the menu it said black pudding. And I didn't have the slightest idea what that was, so I asked Billy. And he's like, oh, just go ahead and get it. And uh, I asked the waitress what it was, and she said that she didn't know what it was. And I don't really believe her. But I went ahead and ordered it, and I was trying to think black pudding. What could that possibly be? Well, in the States, we have this thing we call chocolate pudding. And it's sweet and chocolatey and really good, so I'm expecting something like that to come out with whipped cream on top. But the waitress finally walks out, and she has this big plate. And it looks like it has the world's largest scab sitting on top of it. And she sets it in front of me and says, there's your dinner. And it didn't take me long to realize that black pudding is not for me. I caught up with Billy last week here in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, we sat down and had a really nice conversation. So here's part two, Billy Bragg. Sometimes you're on the road somewhere and you're not rushing anywhere, you know, and you see a signpost and it's something you can't resist. You just can't resist going to visit. And the Creationist Museum, uh, when we were driving down, I think we were going to do uh, a radio show in Lexington, Kentucky. 
Um, and we saw, we, we just had to go. We had to go. And it was a huge car park full of cars. It seemed like there was a million people in there, like Noah's Ark, you know. And as we walked down towards the door, there was a uniformed guard outside with a sniffer dog. And as we walked up to him, it's me, Grant, and Vaughn Martinian. And Vaughn's like, uh-oh, thinking he's going to sniff him for dope, you know. And I'm like, Vaughn, relax. The dog is not sniffing for dope. He's sniffing for communism. <laughs> you know, he's going he's gonna to hit me. He's not going to hit you, you know. That's what he's sniffing for. He's sniffing for godless, atheistic, <laughs> commie ideas. So we paid our money and we went in. And, I mean, Grant has... Grant has a visceral reaction to religion. He comes out in hives. I've got a mate who's a um, a lay preacher, and whenever he comes backstage, Grant's like crawling up the walls, keep him away from me, don't you know? <laughs> as if as if it's contagious, you know, as if Christianity is contagious, and you can get it like a fever. So in the Creationist Museum, he was just scowling. He was like, you know, the whole thing. I I found it a bit weird in. I mean, Adam and Eve. Adam looked like Chris Christopherson, exactly like Chris Christopherson in a loincloth, you know. And and Eve kind of looked like um, who was uh, Rita Coolidge. It looked like Chris Christopherson and Rita Coolidge photo shoot, <laughs> the Garden of Eden. And that was kind of it. Everybody else in there looked like either Chris Christopherson or Rita Coolidge, you know. In the Ark, they didn't really change much. They looked like, you know, sort of well manicured truck drivers. No offence, mate. But um, they look like well-manicured <laughs> truck drivers uh, whose hair never went grey. Don't they have, uh, like, people riding dinosaurs and things like that? Yeah, well, they kind of, they, they're kind of trying to... Um, they, 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 I don't think they went so far as people riding dinosaurs, but they did have people walking with dinosaurs, which is like... I'm not sure exactly that's 100%. But it was a it was a fabulous hundred uh, percent American experience. Every tour, we find something that defines the United States of America for us. On this tour, it was a truck stop in uh, Black River Falls, Wisconsin. We've been up in Canada for five or six days, and uh, Canada is uh, not just a different country; it's a different culture. It has a a slight whiff of Europe that you don't get in the West, in, in America, rather. Um, not the least that there's a European lady on their money, you know, our queen. Why she's on their money, I don't know. But there she is. Um, and we kind of went asleep in Winnipeg, crossed the border some ungodly hour, and we all wake up in a truck stop in Black River Falls, which is a Denny's truck stop. So we're like, you know, they'll have bacon and eggs. We go in, they give us a menu that says on the front of it, Baconalia, B-A-C-O-N-A-L-I-A, Baconalia. We open it up and it is just the most extravagant bacon-flavoured, literally, uh, menu, which includes the desserts. One of they, were, they actually had a bacon, a maple bacon milkshake, okay, the like of which you'll, you'll never find outside the United States of America. That, that to me, was... Um, you know, as American as, as the Creationist Museum. Totally, you know, taking a, a concept to its literal limit, you know. Not only do we, do we um, 
believe in the literal truth of the Bible, we're going to build a museum where we display, you know, the literal truth so you can see it for yourself. And, and charge and, your admission. Yeah, charge your admission. And we not only do we believe in the the the, the literal truth that uh, more is actually more, we're going to put bacon in a milkshake and we're going to dare you. The other thing was, um, see if I can get this right now, um, was it sort of like caramel chocolate brownie sundae with bacon, which which they showed you a picture of, and it looked like um, a kind of like a, a, a savoury sweet pyramid. And and all I could think of, well, I, 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 we never ordered any of this stuff, you know, being sort of pale, mealy-mouthed Englishmen. But all I could think of was, you know, what they were thinking when they when they put this combo together. I guess they were thinking, if you build it, they will come. You know. So we cherish these moments. You know, as outsiders, you know, I'm sure you've you know you've seen things in in my country. You know, the, I, I think of the Cern Abbas giant. I mean, how do you explain that to your countrymen and women? I mean, how would you begin to describe it even? Well, the the prime directive when traveling is to partake in things indigenous to the area. So why are you traveling if you don't want to see things that are different from your culture? But a 140-foot-high chalk figure of a man with no trousers and a hard-on <laughs> that, was, that was made in the Stone Age. Yeah. That's pretty sweet, ain't it? Yes. They've got nothing like that in Tennessee, have they? Is that the long man of Wilmington? No, no, that's the that's the Cern Abbas giant. The long man of Wilmington was the guy with the two poles. Okay. I and see it, that from the train from time to time, yeah. about twice a year. Yeah. And then there's the White Horse of Uffington. That's right. I you see, see that. that as well from the from a train. Sometime. It's funny because I'll drive by and see things like that, and and I'll realize, wow, Billy and I rode by here, and he pointed those things out. And well, we you know we take pride in our culture, as you take pride in yours, you know, and and if you can, if, you know, for every um, maple bacon milkshake that you produce, we have some, you know, perhaps older maybe, but just as garish. Uh, what do you call? Them? Gim crap, gore gore, gim gores, gore gears, gee gores. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> that kind of like, what the f is that kind of thing? We have them too. Yeah, I did. I used to make my own charts, which were very heavily, uh, heavily Simon and Garfunkel. How did you get started doing that? Making charts. Yeah. Well, I think it's. I think when you when you get to a certain age, you you want to kind of. Uh, order the world in your own image don't you really so you feel you know when when the charts are the um the way by which your taste and your your culture are shaped you want to attempt to shape your own culture didn't you it's like picking your own football team of course you would do something like that but yeah and and sort of i did a, i did it over a period of about three or four years and gradually the Simon and Garfunkel bias fell away and other interesting stuff like Desmond Decker came in. But, you know, Bridge Over Trouble Water was still pretty heavy in there. The boxer was always near the top. Scarborough Fair, always near the top. And weirdly enough, uh, it's Scarborough Fair is the most played song on my iTunes. So nothing changes, huh? How weird is that? I believe that was recorded here in Nashville at RCO, RCA Studio B. I think it was. On the day that... Um, uh, England beat Portugal in the um, World Cup finals in 1966. Nice. 
There you go. I topped you off that. You thought you got me there, didn't you, with a with a factoid, and I've out factoided you there, Otis. And I'm proud of that. Yeah, '66 was recorded, wasn't it? I believe so. I think so. Yeah. Did um. So when did you stop? Did your friends do this also, or did you just? Hmm. I don't know about that. You know, the guys I sat around listening to music with ended up being the band with me, so we kind of like our tastes converged around um, the faces and uh, the Stones and the Who and those sort of guitar bands that you could play. You know, we were we were recalcitrant in that we didn't listen to the most modish bands like uh, the drummer, whose taste was always much more esoteric than ours. He was into things like Beatbop Deluxe, who at the time I couldn't see the worth of, but now I recognise Bill Nelson as an amazing songwriter and guitar player. But, uh, yeah, we kind of like, you know, Worked our way through the Roger Stewart songbook, literally. That's what I learned to play first. Um, and I, it was more uh, kind of Bob Dylan for me. Bob Dylan seemed a little bit easier to play. Uh, three chords, you know, with the occasional minor. You got most of his early stuff down there. Whereas Paul Simon was a bit more ambitious in his guitar playing. So, I, you know, I never learned how to play Bridge Over Troll Water. Or even the boxer, actually, for that matter. That seemed like an, an immense... Uh, tune. Although now I could probably riff it as you know, I could busk it probably now. But at the time, it seemed like you know, holy. I better not mess with that. Whereas banging out Mr. Tambourine Man for half an hour, I could do that. I knew all three chords. <laughs> yeah. You became friends with Ian McLagan from the Faces, yeah, which was one of the highlights of uh, my career. Uh, met Mac down at South by Southwest. Um, he moved to Austin uh, to be near to Ronnie Lane, who'd been there because of his health. <clears throat> and um, it's actually, I used to bump into his son a lot in a local supermarket in Chiswick. And Max saw me on TV. I can get this right around. Max saw me on TV in Austin, made him think of his son Lee. He wrote a song called Best of British, and he thought it'd be nice if I sang on it. So when I was in Austin one time for South by, I got a phone call and it was Mac out of the blue, which was like, wow. And then when we came to London to, to uh, he brought the tapes to London to record, um, we couldn't find a studio for him. And the guy who taught me to play guitar, who was into the faces even more than me, Wiggy, had a little studio. So I said, can we come, can I, is it, can I used to ring him up when I wanted to do demos and stuff. And I said, can I come around and do a bit of recording tonight? He says, yeah, if you like, roll up about six o'clock. And I turned up with Mac, and he was blown away. <laughs> and then Mac, Mac ran, rung his son, Lee, and Lee came around as well, and we had a kind of like a, a real evening of it, and I ended up playing on on, on the record, Best of British. So, yeah. So um, And then subsequently Mac uh, you know, played on a couple of albums, joined the blokes, and uh, I'm still, you know, I still like to think of him as a dear friend. Saw him just out south by southwest. Lovely bloke. One time we were in Italy on the bus and he was, um, he was, I think he was compiling the um, Faces box set, which is called um, Four Guys Walk Into a Bar, Five Guys Walk Into a Bar. And um, he had all these instrumental tracks. He didn't know what they were. And he came up to me and said, in the bus quietly said to Bill, think they might be outtakes from Ooh La La. 
You wouldn't mind having a listen to them. Would you tell me what they are? So I'm like, sure, buddy. Give me the, give me the tag. <laughs> so I had to listen to them, and I just wrote down what they were. Indeed, backing tracks from Ooh La La. He, he couldn't remember. <laughs> he was like, oh, I don't know. So I was like, okay, this one's glad and sorry. This one sounds like an early version of, you know, and I just made notes and he said, oh, much obliged. I mean, he didn't say anything to anyone else on the bus. It was all like, you know, I'll tell you what, you know. So I, I was like, I was made up by that. I felt I'd done a service to the faces, bless them. <laughs> yeah. How crazy is that? Hmm. Well, I was a big fan of uh, the Jam initially. They were the first punk band that really struck me. There was something about the Jam that, that connected with the music that me and my mates were listening to at the time, early Stones, early Who. Um, and they, they seemed closer to um, us. They seemed like kids from the suburbs than the Clash and the Pistols who sounded like they'd probably been to art school. It was something, you know. There's all that Malcolm McLaren shit as well going around. It could all be just an art school prank, you know, like Roxy Music. Not really sure I wanted to <clears throat> involve myself in that. And we, we were going to see the jam in little pubs and stuff. And then they, they announced they were doing a gig at the Rainbow Big Theatre <clears throat> in London uh, with The Clash. And so we thought we'd go along and we'd see the jam, you know, prove how, how much better than The Clash they were. Because at the time, The Clash were the coming band, you know, the Pistols had kind of dissolved, but the Clash had taken up the, man, the mantle of, of great punk band. And so we went along and um, the, the jam was so-so, the room was too big for them, they couldn't really fit it, but the Clash would just blew us away. They did all the things that we liked about the Rolling Stones, except they were our age, which was like incredibly exciting, you know. So um, when they said they were going to appear at uh, Rock Against Racism, we thought, you know, that's a double reason to go. I think we probably would have gone anyway, but when they were on. Um, so we, we went and uh, marched through the streets of East London. I mean, at the time, I was, I was working in an office with a bunch of guys who, in their everyday language, was sort of racist, sexist, homophobic, sort of casual racism, you know. And I never said anything about it because I was the office junior. I felt I was in a minority, so I just put up with it, even though I knew it was, it was embarrassing, really. Never mind wrong. But um, going on that march was the first political activism I ever took part of. Um, getting to the park and seeing 100,000 kids just like me, it was packed with all these kids. Um, it kind of made me realise that my generation were going to define themselves in opposition to discrimination of all kinds. You know, that they were, we were going to be the generation of two-tone of of, of artists against apartheid. You know, we were going to be the people who, who were the, the outriders for our multicultural society. And when I went back to work on Monday morning, I knew I wasn't in a minority. I didn't feel in a minority anymore. That, was, that event gave me the courage of my convictions. But crucially, it wasn't the clash that did that. It was the audience. It was being in that audience and feeling that sense of we are together against this thing that made me think, yeah, you know, and I think that's that's probably the most music can do, give you that sense, of momentary sense of solidarity that charges your batteries and sends you back out there to fight the fight wherever you find it, whether it's at work, at home, at college, wherever, whatever the fight is, your fight, the thing you feel strongly about. And um, 
I often think of that day um, when I'm doing my job. I think that, you know, if anyone comes to my gig and feels they're not alone, then I've done my job. I've, I've probably done the absolute most I can do as an artist to help bring about any any form of social change because it's not we, the artists, that do that job. It's the audience. Always has been, always will be. There's more of them than there is us. But also, you know, expecting Billy Bragg to change the world for you, that's a real cop-out, isn't it? You know, that's a real total cop-out. So, I, you know, I've over the last few years, I've become perhaps more explicit about this. I speak about it more often. You know, I often uh, lace it with a... a, a, a definition of cynicism as our greatest enemy and our own cynicism at that, our own sense that nothing changes, our own sense that everything's messed up, our own sense that all politicians are the same. We have to overcome that if we're ever to, you know, I don't mean we artists, I mean we people who want to make the world a better place. You know, we have to overcome our own cynicism and that the only way to do that, the only real antidote to cynicism is activism, is to engage. And I try to do that whenever I can. I don't do it all the time. I'm only human. I'm not Superman, but when an opportunity does come along, I do my best to to offer support and solidarity, and you know, and pass it on, and that's that's how it works. I think you have to choose your fights wisely. So yeah, you do. So you, you have do. the strength to fight yep. the ones you need. to. Exactly. Yeah. You you know, it would be great to engage in everything, but every now and then something comes along, um, the like of which you see as an opportunity to make a real difference in the world. You know, for instance. Someone wrote to me saying, you haven't got any spare guitars, have you, that I could borrow because I'm using them in a prison. You know, I went along and saw what this guy was doing with guitars in a local prison near where I lived and realised that there was a lot of potential to do that in other prisons, to engage uh, prisoners in, in rehabilitation by teaching them to play guitar. And, and as, as an artist, I felt that maybe that's something I could do that could have an actual effect on something. So I, you know, committed myself to do that and, and put together a little organisation called Joe Guitar Doors. Um, and that was exactly because I could see from my perspective where I was standing how I could actually help here. Instead of just raising the money and let, let them go off and do something, I could see how I could actually do something here. And so that's, you know, that was a big part of the commitment to, to, to trying to make that intervention. And that's worked out well over in the UK, hasn't it? It's it's working out well. I mean, when we began, um, there was a Labour government who were a little bit more conducive. I had good contacts at the Ministry of Justice with people I've worked with in the 1980s and 1990s. Since the government changed to the coalition, things have become a bit tougher. Economically, there's not so much money to spend. Um, and when the government are looking to make cuts, top of the list is prison, you know, cutting down on time for education, cutting down on time for recreation, cutting down on spend for people coming outside and helping. And we rely, we get the guitars in the prison, but we rely on people being there who already work in the prison, doing the work, actually be there every week. I can't be there every week. I'm in Nashville, you know. Uh, so we rely on people on the ground, but that window of opportunity that we had has begun to narrow. And people that I've worked with are telling me instead of doing three days a week, they're only getting one day a week now. So... It's becoming difficult. But there's also uh, Wayne Kramer working here in the USA uh, trying to uh, make the same sort of inroads, you know. Uh, ironically, it, Wayne gets mentioned in the first line of Joe Guitar Doors. I want to talk about Wayne and his deals of cocaine. You know, they wrote it about Wayne. Wayne was in the band called the MC5 and he got busted, possibly, you know, planted maybe, 
there's conjecture, a long time ago. And uh, it's funnily, there's, there's, uh, you know, Mick Jones wrote a song about him. And uh, a couple of years ago, Wayne, who's, again, been a great activist, both in the MC5 and carrying on from then, invited me to come and do a, a gig about drug rehabilitation for children at the Nokia Center in New York. And uh, we were talking about uh, this. He also organized a gig after that for the entire, all the bands that played at Sing Sing. That's just as part of his jail outreach. And I was talking to him on the way up there about this thing I've got going in the UK, getting guitars into prisons. And I said to him, I don't know if you're familiar with the Clash song, Jail Guitar Doors. And he said, yes, Bill, I'm in it. And I was like, <laughs> how do you mean? He said, well, how does it start? And I'm like, oh, shit. sorry, Wayne, <laughs> I'm really sorry. Uh, and what's worse than that is I told Mick Jones, who wrote the song, I told Mick Jones this story. And then, you know, and I said, and he said, I'm in it. And Jonesy said, is he? I'm like, oh, God, it's not only me. So, uh, but the great thing is Wayne has just grasped it, you know. He said, this is the thing I've been looking to do all my life. This is the thing I should be doing. Um, so he's done, he's doing amazing work. I mean, it's, it's a completely different uh, prison system in the U.S., and he's out in California where he's – it the reason it needed someone like Wayne was because Wayne had done um, outreach in prisons with Narcotics Anonymous. He'd been into prisons. He had connections with people in the prison system who were doing the kind of work. He is the ideal guy to do this rather than – you know, I had connections. I had connections with the Ministry of Justice uh, who trusted me. I had connections with the guy who took me into his prison. To be a complete outsider and do this would be tough. You do need to get in very quickly with the people in authority and you need them to open doors, literally, but also figuratively for you to get in and do it. So Wayne is an ideal character and he's doing great work out there in California. He's doing it, you know, one at a time. I went into a prison with Wayne in Austin a year ago. Yeah. And um, it was it was great. There was There's some guys, my buddy Kevin Hucker, who uh, goes in once a week and teaches guys how to play guitar. Yeah. And a lot of his buddies come in also, and, and they they don't get the credit, but they're on the ground doing a lot of good work. Well, that's work. the model that we, we, we think will work best is local musicians raising money locally to spend in a local prison. We think it's, it's a more of an autonomous organization. I've tried to encourage that in the UK. I've got one or two places in Brighton. There's a, uh, a choir, a rock and roll choir, that raised money for a local prison. There's a guy in Leeds who does it in his local prison. And that's really the model. It, it, the, the only bit that needs to be centralized is getting the guitars cheap. Because I can do that. I send the guitars up to them. I raise the money. You know, I use my profile to raise the money. But it really is, you know, the model for working is local people working locally with the local prison. It's worth saying, I get asked by a lot of uh, my conservative friends, you know, why should we care at all what happens in a prison? And uh, I think that's a fair question, but my answer is always a pragmatic one. Is the vast majority of the people who are in prisons are going to come out and they're going to move in right next door to us. And it's in our own best interest that they come out it rehabilitated is. and in a better state of mind than when they went in. Exactly. Why, why are we putting them in prison if not to try and get them to mend their ways? All right, there's maybe 25% of people in prison in Britain who should never, ever come out again, ever. But the other 75%, not only should they come out, they are going to come out. So we should take any opportunity we have to help them to to reconnect with society and playing music and writing songs and getting it down on paper 
is a good way to do that. You know, ultimately, our goal is to equip them with a means to deal with the things that the frustrations that life throws at them in a non-confrontational way by writing songs, by writing poetry, by finding the solace that as musicians we get from playing guitar, that therapeutic side of music, away from the, the show busy side and trying to show them a way, a meditative way to, to use that. And it's clear that to other inmates that prisoners in prison with a guitar who get to play a guitar are accessing something that isn't available anywhere else, something that's, that's deeply emotional. Uh, you know, in the way that a musical instrument can help you transcend your surroundings. So, um, and only the best behaved inmates get this privilege. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's a carrot. It's a big carrot. You know, and you know, and you have to work the way the prisons want to work. It's their, it's their gig. You're in their space, and you have to do, you know, a little bit at a time. And, and sometimes it's frustrating. Sometimes it's slow. But ultimately, I believe it's beneficial. I sit and think sometimes about like the Carter family. They would sing songs about the depression and all that, but there was no need to refer to them as like protest singers. They would write love songs. They would write about, you know, just whatever. And then they would also write about the way they feel about the world. And it's this recent thing that people feel this need to put people in these boxes. Mm. And I feel like it sometimes marginalizes people who write about something that they feel strongly about in the world. Well, I've, I've been feeling that really lately since Margaret Thatcher died because, you know, people have been saying, oh, you know, you owe her, your career to her. But actually, she was one, of the, she was the person who painted me in the corner. Mm. You know, yeah, I did, I did write those songs in reaction to her. And I'd have been a different songwriter without her, but she doesn't define me. I am not, you know, Mr. Uh, which side are you on? And I'm not Mr. Levi Stubbs Tears. If you really want to know who I am, I'm the guy singing Tank Park Salute. That's really me, you know. And I think that every night I sing this, I think, you know what? You think I'm oh, a political songwriter? Check this out. This is where I'm coming from. And I think we all have to fight against that, you know. I think it's particularly now when uh, there's not so many people who are, are doing that. I think people are still young. People are still engaged, but I just think they're using other mediums now. The internet makes it possible to express your view without learning to play a guitar and standing up in the bar and singing. Not everybody can do that. So there's better access to the internet for putting your opinions out there. But shit, nobody ever toured the world reading out their Facebook posts, did they? You know what I'm saying? Nobody, nobody ever wrote a tweet that can make you cry. So if you are listening, you want to see the world, uh, picking up a guitar or some kind of musical instrument and making it talk is not a bad way to begin. Oh man, let's go eat some food. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Billy for meeting up with me at a hotel room here in Nashville, Tennessee. You can find out everything you need to know about Billy at billybragg.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints that would look great in your living room or office. You could buy one of Amy's records. You could buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. 
If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave us a comment. It'll help us move up in the search rankings and it'll help a lot more people find out about this show. And subscribe while you're there. You'll get a brand new episode every Wednesday for free. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.